Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews 11, verses 32 to 40. As always, I encourage you to have your Bible open there and to follow along as we go. What more shall I say? The pastor asks at the start of our passage. Perhaps after working through chapter 11 of Hebrews as closely as we have the last few months, you could be wondering the same thing. What more could there be left to say? Because it does seem that the pastor has adequately made his point. Many weeks ago, we began in verse 1, where the pastor says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Then, using 16 exemplars, the pastor has shown his hearers what such faith looks like in our lives. He's done it by using examples that have taken us through a survey of sorts, a survey of faith, in Old Testament history. From the beginnings of Genesis and the faith of Abel in verse 4, the pastor has brought us to the period of the entry of the Israelites into the promised land in verses 30 and 31. But now, perhaps mindful of time constraints and his hearers' mental stamina, and yes, I think, having made his point sufficiently, The pastor changes his approach in our passage this morning. He concludes chapter 11 by condensing the rest of Old Testament history's profiles of faith so as to achieve in these verses a swift but massive recounting of faith from the period of the judges until just before Jesus. You likely felt the difference in how this part of Hebrews 11 is structured. Perhaps you noticed that the by faith refrain that we've all grown accustomed to hearing these last many weeks is now gone. Replaced in this text by a single through faith in verse 33 that covers the entire section. The pastor here is not so much focused now on individuals and their acts of faith as he is on presenting an open-ended, innumerable host of the faithful and their experiences as his survey comes to an end. As he does this, I think there are three things the pastor wanted his hearers and us to understand from this concluding section of Hebrews 11. First, in verses 32 to 35a, the pastor highlights the triumphs enabled by faith. Then secondly, in verses 35b to 38, the pastor focuses on the trials endured by faith. And third, in verses 39 to 40, the pastor turns our attention to the telos, the Greek word meaning the goal, the telos enjoyed by faith. The triumphs enabled by faith, the trials endured by faith, and the telos, or the end, 
enjoyed by faith. That's what I see in these verses, and that's what will be the roadmap for our time together this morning, as well as into next week also. Because this morning we will cover the triumphs and the trials of faith found in verses 32 to 38, leaving the telos, or the end of faith, in verses 39 and 40, primarily for next week, when we'll link it to the work and example of Jesus Christ in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, and consider the conclusion of this great part of Hebrews together. For this morning, then, we begin with the triumphs enabled by faith in verses 32 to 35a. The pastor begins this part of Hebrews with a list of names. They are the only names that he will mention here in the rest of Hebrews 11. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. Here the pastor names some of those who could serve as examples of faith moving forward in Israel's story. But he does so in what I think is meant to be a suggestive and open-ended list. Notice here how the number of names diminishes as time goes on. The first four, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, summarize the period of the judges. But then David and Samuel are the only names mentioned in association with Israel's kings. And when it comes to the prophets, though certain prophetic figures do seem to be in view in some of what is to follow, here the pastor mentions no individual names at all, simply citing them as a category. Notice, too, how the names he does mention are not in exact chronological order perhaps by putting Gideon before Barak, Samson before Jephthah, and David before Samuel, each of those the reverse of their chronological order in the scriptures, the pastor is signaling that he's not so concerned now with the chronological progression as much as he is with the typical nature of these names, the representative nature of this list, the point seems to be that these are perhaps the names that came initially to mind as the pastor began thinking forward into later eras of Israel's history. Only what may strike those of you familiar with the accounts of the persons mentioned here in verse 32 is that many of them, in fact, had a significant lack of faith in their lives. We're reminded here in this brief list that perseverance in faith is not the same thing as perfection, not by a long shot. Barak wasn't courageous enough to go to battle without Deborah in Judges chapter 4. Asking for signs demonstrated Gibeon's lack of faith in Judges 6. And he also made an ephod that catapulted Israel to sin in Judges chapter 8. Samson's sexual infidelities and impulsive acts are infamous. Just see Judges chapters 13 to 16. 
and Jephthah. Well, Jephthah foolishly vowed to sacrifice his own daughter in Judges chapter 11. It is admittedly rather more difficult to find blemishes in Samuel, though we know his sons didn't turn out so well and he appointed them as judges anyway in 1 Samuel 8. And David, we know he had many faults from our study of 1 and 2 Samuel a few years ago at Christ the King, but of course it was his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah in 2 Samuel 11 that come foremost to mind in that regard. And yet, it isn't those sins and faults that are remembered here, but their faith. Through these names, through these men, and by the faith that they did evidence, would come military conquests, political achievements, deliverance for the people of Israel at key moments in their history, Gideon gave Israel victory over the Midianites with his force of just 300 men. Barak led the united tribes in their victory against Sisera and the mighty Canaanite chariot army. Even Jephthah led the tribes in battle against the Ammonites. And at the end of his life, Samson finally achieved by faith what he had failed to do during his life because of unbelief. The New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce observes that on three of these four, on Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, the text of Judges says that the spirit of Yahweh came upon them. This could be taken as conclusive evidence of their faith, Bruce says. Well, we're almost certainly more familiar and confident, I would guess, regarding the faith of Samuel and David. Without Samuel's faithful ministry, Israel would surely have fallen into disarray. The Philistines would have subjugated them, and David would have died an unknown shepherd boy. And as for David himself, great sinner though he was, he is perhaps the quintessential Old Testament man of faith. The shepherd boy who by faith slayed Goliath to go on to become Israel's greatest king. What are we to make of it all? One commentator puts it this way. If the author had intended to convey the impression that God commended Old Testament figures who were stalwart in trust and spotless in character, he might have selected judges described so briefly that their flaws remained unmentioned, or a king such as Josiah, distinguished for his righteous reforms. Instead, our preacher calls us to listen to God as he testifies on behalf of patriarchs, politicians, prophets, and prostitutes who had fluctuating faith and questionable morality, but who continued to trust God to be faithful to his promises. If they could act in faith and see God work, so could the sermon letters first hearers, and so can we in our trials and frailty. 
John Calvin, in his commentary on Hebrews, puts the matter even more succinctly in a way that I quite like. Calvin says, in every saint, there is always to be found something reprehensible. Nevertheless, although faith may be imperfect and incomplete, it does not cease to be approved by God. And so it is from these six names and mention of the prophets that the pastor turns in verses 33 to 35a to 10 examples of the triumphs enabled by faith. Now, the point is not that we're supposed to now match all 10 of these triumphs to one or other of the names that the pastor has mentioned in his suggestive list. Quite the opposite. While some of these experiences do fit well with the figures mentioned in verse 32, not all of them do. And in many cases, we can think of more than one individual to whom these might refer. The nine examples of triumph mentioned in verses 33 and 34 come to us in three groups of three. First, we read here about political successes. Who through faith, the pastor writes, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises. It's easy to see how these statements could have been suggested by the names in verse 32. The pastor states, first of all, that by faith they conquered kingdoms. And we've already mentioned the victories of Barak and Gideon and Jephthah. And David, of course, won many battles, both as a warrior and as the king of Israel. Next, enforcing justice, the Greek literally says establishing righteousness. This was the responsibility of judges and kings. But here it was probably David, most in view, the king who had this responsibility and fulfilled it, at least for a time. 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15, describes David at his high point when it recounts that David reigned over all Israel and administered justice and equity to all his people. The pastor then says that because of faith, these believers also obtained promises, something that was clearly the case for many of the names in verse 32 as well. Barak was promised victory over Sisera's forces. The angel of the Lord promised Gideon that he would triumph over Midian. Promises were made that Samson would begin to save Israel from the Philistines. And of course, David received many promises, including being anointed as king and receiving the promise of a dynasty. So there are clear connections between the names the pastor mentions in verse 32 and the first three of faith's triumphs. But we begin to move more clearly beyond just those six names in the second trio of achievements listed in verses 33 and 34. These now focused on deliverance from death. The pastor says they stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. While David and Samson both slew lions, Scholars and commentators seem to universally recognize that the wording here of stopping the mouths of lions is a clear reference to Daniel. 
who after refusing the king's edict to stop worshiping the Lord was thrown into the lion's den for punishment. The key comes in how Daniel explains what happened in Daniel chapter 6, verse 22. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, he said, and they have not harmed me. As for quenching the power of fire, well, it's hard to see anything other than David's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in that description. Like Daniel, those three also refused to obey the king's command to deny God. And when Nebuchadnezzar ordered them thrown into the fire, God went with them and they emerged safe. Surely the writer of Hebrews would encourage us to remember their great testimony of faith. Listen to it recorded in Daniel chapter 3 verses 17 and 18. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, they declared. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And as for those who escaped the edge of the sword, as the pastor writes, well, one has only to think of David during the period when he was a fugitive from Saul, of Elijah when he fled for his life from the enraged Jezebel, of Elisha when the king of Syria sent an armed force to destroy him, and of many others whose lives were imperiled because they remained loyal to God and his truth. Sometimes faith brings God's people deliverance from death. Then in the third set of three triumphs having to do with military victories, the pastor says here in verse 34 that they were made strong out of weaknesses, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And the truth is many biblical examples could be included under this description, including from among the names mentioned earlier. Gideon was one who was strengthened so that he put foreign armies to flight. At the end of his life, Samson, even out of weakness and independence on God, prayed for strength and it was given him. David's slaying of Goliath, Esther's courageous advocacy of her fellow Jews, these are all instances of the weak becoming strong through faith. One example that came to my mind in thinking about this third group of, of triumphs was the example of Jehoshaphat. Confronted by a vast enemy invader, this great king of Israel stood before God in the assembly of the nation and praising God for his might concluded this in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Jehoshaphat was one who looked to God in his weakness and found strength. The Lord sent him a prophet in reply, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, he said, for the battle is not yours, but God's. 
Finally, the pastor concludes his list of the triumphs of faith with the climactic tenth example in verse 35a. Women received back their dead by resurrection, he says. There can be little doubt that the hearers of Hebrews would have thought immediately of two episodes here. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah had sought shelter with the widow of Zarephath, a woman from pagan Sidon. She had trusted God by obeying the prophet's commands, and through faith, she received this miraculous display of God's blessing. Elisha is the other example where, in contrast to the widow of Zarephath, he received help from a wealthy Shunammite woman who had been unable to bear a child in 2 Kings 4. God blessed her with a son, but when her son subsequently died, she sought out the prophet to ask for God's intervention, and through her faith in Elisha's ministry and his God, her son was restored to life. What awesome triumphs of faith the pastor has brought to mind in these verses. And the point is that all of these triumphs were enabled by faith. And all of them were meant to remind the members of that first century house church that in both openly miraculous ways and sometimes in more subtle and secret ways, the Lord can and does put his great power to work for those who trust in him. God can deliver the faithful anytime he wants to from anything. And in the face of obstacles and weaknesses and tragedy, they and we are to have faith in him, finding deliverance and power and resurrection in the God we believe and trust. And yet, while the pastor would have us celebrate such triumphs enabled by faith, there comes next a significant shift in the middle of verse 35 of Hebrews 11. It's not so clear as it should be in the ESV, but immediately after referring to the women who received back their dead, the pastor's text takes a turn. In the middle of verse 35, where the ESV has the word some, the Greek literally says, but others. There is a different group in view now. Listen to what is said of them. But others were tortured, the pastor says, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life or literally obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. With little warning, the pastor turns his attention in verse 35 from the triumphs enabled by faith to the trials endured by faith. And there's a crucial lesson in this for us, brothers and sisters, just as there was for Hebrews' original hearers. The pastor would have us understand that if the faith of God's people 
could sometimes boast of such great triumphs in the form of political successes, deliverance from death, military victories, and even the raising of the dead to life? Well, that same faith should be seen as no less powerful in the willing endurance of the trials experienced by others for the sake of their faith. In describing the great triumphs enabled by faith in the history of God's people, the pastor's point is not that faith keeps us from suffering in the world. That's not why he described those triumphs. You see, there was a deeper reason. The pastor knows those to whom he is writing. And I think he describes faith's momentous triumphs in order to encourage those who are now in the midst of its horrendous trials, trials not unlike those recounted now in verses 35b to 38. Only let's be clear, this is not the kind of encouragement that says, if you just have faith like they did, everything will be okay. Because God will deliver you in the same way he did them. No, that's not it. And we know that's not it. Because everything in verses 35b to 38 is governed by the same through faith expression in verse 33 that governed the first part of the text. Have a look at the passage once again. I said there was a shift in the middle of verse 35. And there is, but I do not mean by that that the pastor has now shifted topics. The topic in this passage is still the examples of faith from the history of God's people, beginning with the judges and up to the time just before Christ. Verse 33 began the list of examples of what faith brings about by saying, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, and so on. What I want you to see now is that though a shift has occurred in the middle of verse 35 from the triumphs to the trials of faith, the pastor here is still talking about those who through faith experience these things. In other words, the miseries that God's people sustained in verse 35b to 38, well, they came by faith too. They came by faith too, not because of unbelief. It was through faith that some were tortured and others suffered mocking and flogging and were stoned and killed and were destitute. When in verse 39, the pastor will turn to say, and all these, though commended through their faith did not receive the promise, that includes those who suffered the trials described in verses 35b to 38, just as much as it does those who experienced the triumphs that came before them in the text. Having true faith in God is no guarantee of comfort and security in this life. 
the suffering and misery and destitution and even the torture of God's people in verses 35 to 38 are not owning to God's disapproval. In fact, we should say that theirs was no less a triumphant faith, for that faith enabled them to honor God by faithfully enduring to the end, which, as we'll see in weeks to come, is what the pastor knows his hearers need to do as well. Let's look only very briefly at the content of verses 35b to 38. The first statement in verse 35b is a dramatic one. The pastor says that some of the faithful were tortured to death and refused to gain their deliverance by denying the faith. Most scholars seem to agree that here the apparent reference in view is to the Maccabean martyrs. The Maccabeans were second century B.C. Jews who stood up to the king Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes persecuted them by requiring them to eat swine flesh and to sacrifice to Greek gods and tortured them when they refused. Specifically, the connection here seems to be to the apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees, where in 2 Maccabees chapters 6 and 7, we find the very same Greek word for torture that's used here, distinctively featured in that passage as well. The point is that each of those who were so tortured could have been released if they had compromised their faith, but each categorically refused. The reason being, as our text explains, so that they might rise again to a better life. In other words, the reason they endured such horrors was to obtain a resurrection to everlasting life in the world to come. What tremendous faith. Moving ahead to verse 36, the faithful are described there as suffering mocking and floggings and chains and imprisonment. That could be in reference to many such persons, but almost certainly it includes some of the earlier prophets. Because he boldly declared the word of the Lord, for example, Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks. Subject to public mocking, in Jeremiah 20, verse 7, the prophet says, I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. On a later occasion, Jeremiah would be falsely accused, beaten, thrown into prison, and afterward lowered into the mud of an empty cistern where he would have died had not Ebed-Melech rescued him. But Jeremiah was not unique in his suffering as a prophetic figure in these ways. In verse 37 of Hebrews chapter 11, the list continues. Some were stoned to death, the pastor says. In 2 Chronicles chapter 24, Zechariah was put to death by stoning for rebuking the people. According to widely accepted tradition, Jeremiah also was stoned to death in Egypt. Others were sawn in two, the pastor says. According to Jewish tradition, this was said to be the fate of the prophet Isaiah. Still others were put to death with the sword. 
Theirs was a steadfast, secure faith. Jesus himself remembered it. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together? Well, lastly, in verses 37 and 38 of Hebrews 11, we read about those of the faithful who knew deprivation on account of their being excluded from unbelieving society. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, the pastor writes, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Their clothing signified their poverty. As one commentator explains, untreated animal skins were the most primitive dress imaginable and suggested severe deprivation or asceticism. They were destitute, lacking in both money and food, and what's more, they suffered painful treatment from those in the world. The pastor says they were afflicted, mistreated, banished from home and society. Rejecting the world, they were ejected by the world. And where would they go but to the places where outcasts often did, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Such was the experience of some of the faithful in Israel's history. Such has been the experience of some of the faithful in all times of history. And such is the experience of some of the faithful in some places of the world today. And yet, God's evaluation is different, dear friends. They are those of whom the world was not worthy, the pastor says in verse 38. Such men and women were thought unfit by the world because of their faith in God, when the reality is that this world, because of its unbelief, was in fact not a fit place for them. Therefore, Hebrews 11 verse 16 says, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. How well these figures of Hebrews 11 remind us that, as the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2, verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Brothers and sisters, next week, we'll take up verses 39 and 40 of Hebrews 11 in connection with the beginning of chapter 12. But as we conclude this morning, what final lesson are we to draw from verses 32 to 38? Well, there could be a few things, but let me land on what I think is most important once again. In this life, we may experience triumphs enabled by faith, and we may experience trials endured by faith. 
and both are genuine expressions of faith. Which of them you and I experience more of in our lives and for what length of time and at what intensity is not up to us. And it is not a function of how much faith we have. It's up to God. And what Hebrews 11 verses 32 to 38 teaches us, because I think it's what it was teaching the original hearers of this text, is that what matters is not the circumstances in which we find ourselves, but our faith in God, whatever the circumstances. The same faith that in some cases meant escape from the edge of the sword, as verse 34 says, in other cases meant being killed with the sword, as verse 37 says. God may place us on either side, brothers and sisters, as he sees fit. Faith trusts him both in triumphs and in trials. As it rejoices in the goodness God gives and as it holds on to the goodness God promises. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.